making your way in the world today takes everything you've got. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Wouldn't you like to get away? Sometimes you wanna go. LAPD, drop the piano. Did everyone here forget it's 1929? You still got four more years of prohibition left. Four more years! Four, four more, more years. years! Stop that! You're all clearly like a glass of lemonade on a hot summer day, which is to say, drunk. Hey! All right, round them up, everyone in the wagon. Come on, let's go, Slippery Sam. Come on, Cannibal Cliff Clavin. You too, Desperate Diane. Ah, 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 wife beating Woody, get over here. You too, Rhea Perlman. What about me? Get out of here, Frazier. You too, Nameless Piano Player, let's go, come on. But I'm Norm. You're nobody, and nobody knows your name. But I was just playing my song. You're not even supposed to know that song yet. This is a crime punishable by death. Death? And your tombstone will read, Here lies blank. Blank, blank, nobody. Ant-Man walking. I can't die in here. Alone. Not like this. A nobody. Where nobody knows my name. Shut up! What? Hey, shut up! The piano player. What's the piano player's name? Help me. What's his name? That's Norm. 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 It's Norm. Hey, Norm. Norm. Norm's here, everybody. Norm. Norm's here. Welcome to prison. Thanks for visiting. Norm. Hey, you can't kill this guy. Give Norm more years. Norm more years. Norm more years. Norm more years. They, they know me. Making your way in the world today takes everything you got, Norm. Taking a break from all your worries sure would help a lot. Shut up, whore! Norm, that's my name. Wouldn't you like to get away? Don't even think about it. Norm, I'm Norm. Sometimes you want to go where everybody knows your name. Yeah, they know my name. And they're always glad you came. Good to have you, Norm. Thanks for joining us. You want to be where you can see our troubles are all the same. No, nah, no, nah, I got one life sentence. You got three. You want to be where everybody knows your name. That's here. They do know my name. They do know my name. Podcast in. Welcome. <laughs> We're launching in T minus five. In T minus five, four, three, two, fun. Podcast. <laughs> Hi, nice to see you again. Thanks. <laughs> hey there. Nice to see you, Daniel. Lonely girl. <laughs> That's me. I thought you were Georgie girl. I've been singing the wrong song to you this whole time. Georgie the Lonely Girl. <laughs> Which is an oldie that never came out. <laughs> Welcome to episode 33. 33. You ready to talk about booze? You want to booze it up? I'm ready to get a snootful? You want to get blotto? You want to get sauce tonight? <laughs> you kids want to buy beer? <laughs> <laughs> That's what we're asking. Can anyone out there buy us beer? <laughs> Whatever kind, we don't even know what's good. <laughs> We've got a perpetual children's license and no one will sell it to us. Here's $10 my mom gave me for medicine, for medicine. <laughs> Which is what she calls beer. <laughs> it fixes what ails you if what ails you is psychological. 
it fixes what ails you, which is ale. <laughs> okay, so yeah, this is episode 33, the episode of our Lord in the year that he died. 1933. 1933. This episode is also 33% proof. Right when Prohibition ended, it just dropped dead. He couldn't believe it. <laughs> Not in my America, he said, which is Utah, because he's that's where he's from. He's, from, he's Mormon. <laughs> Him and John Smith high-fived. I hope you all had a good August. Mm-hmm. All the hills were on fire. Mm-hmm. Did you pick the right ones? That's a lottery that's going around this year. Do you pick the right mountains that are on Was fire? Was all your evidence burned? <laughs> I hope so. And now we're, welcome to September. Wake me up when it ends. I want a compilation of us making that joke <laughs> in this podcast. Of what, the, let's say, 66 hours of recorded material? We probably have two hours of Green Day references. Well, we certainly have put out a lot of Dookie, so <laughs> yeah, we, I would say we do have a lot of Green Day references. Anyway, yeah, alcohol. hello, Greg. Hey, Daniel. Speaking of alcohol, hello, Greg. <laughs> <laughs> you reek of it. Hi, Greg. Somebody sure must have robbed a distillery on the way over. <laughs> Hi, Greg. And rob it. So that is Greg. I am Daniel. Hey, Daniel. Here we are for another month of uh, podcast magic. Witchcraft. I've been calling it witchcraft. Is this your card? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The, uh, You'll never gonna, know. I'm not saying what no, it is. We're going to give it to you anyways, because that's uh, all we got. Is this your rabbit? It's <laughs> <laughs> not a rabbit I walked in with. <laughs> no, that's a hair. <laughs> it's the hair of the podcast that bit me. Hey, oh, write that down. That's the title Long, of this beautiful month. Hair. Long, beautiful hair. <laughs> Long, beautiful hair. Long, beautiful hair. No, write that down. <laughs> All right, that's enough of this. Please, God. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about alcohol this month, the history of this city and its sickening relationship with... It's got a real alcohol problem. Mm-hmm. Yep. This episode is something of an intervention to the city. <laughs> Sit down, Los Angeles. We have to talk. The city, we love you. <laughs> you have a problem. <laughs> Mother Los Angeles, she watches us until we go to bed, and then she drinks all night. Mother Los Angeles. Shut up. <laughs> city of Angels. City of Angels, City of Brewery. Mm-hmm. Um, We're going to be going through basically how it started, our little problem started in this city, and then uh, the most exciting time for alcohol <laughs> prohibition, strangely enough. Uh, it's weird that the best time for alcohol was also the best time for crime. Who would have thunk? <laughs> Is there some sort of correlation between crime and inebriation? <laughs> I'm going to get us started, and here we go. Sit back. Crack open a brewski. Tell the kids to shut up. Sit in the bathtub. Get a Coors. Then <laughs> a hotel room. Don't tell anyone where you are. Get all the booze you can and close the blinds. <laughs> Put them in a brown bag, because you don't even want people to see you do it in private. Nope. We're on the bus, which is private. Well, mine is. <laughs> I don't know about... Mm, mm, you, what you, bus you, you ruffians. Ride? Who drives your bus? <laughs> what butler drives your bus? <laughs> shots. 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 And rolling. Alcohol, the root of all evil. Welcome, sinners, as we discuss how this city of ours got so thirsty and who is responsible for giving baby his bottle. They say wine before beer, sick for a year. We're all just going to have to hope we have enough paid off time because I'm getting into the wine first. Give me a bottle opener. I'll struggle with it in front of my girlfriend. <laughs> I'll push the cork in and it'll be fine. No one will know the difference. I, I kind of like that taste of chunks in my wine. <laughs> no, mm, chunky. Ooh, floaters. Oh, I can feel fingerprints. <laughs> taste fingerprints, Daniel. You taste fingerprints. That's what the LAPD hired you to do. Taste <laughs> fingerprints. You got to sniff out crime and taste the evidence. <laughs> wine was the first form of alcohol to come to Los Angeles. And I'm not talking about... <laughs> Wine like everybody does when they come out of town and they see traffic. <laughs> wine like the classic refrain, traffic, comma, am I right? <laughs> so wine was the first form of alcohol to come to Los Angeles. I tried finding out what sort of alcohol the natives in the area might have had. Nothing, I couldn't find anything, but I know they're hiding something. And someday I'm going to find it. They I'm had find that their one thing that they were getting all messed up on, but I forgot what it was. Coca-Cola. Yep, that's what it was. It was cocaine with Coca-Cola. <laughs> Coca-Cola. I was going to say, just do it. I'm like, that's not right. <laughs> Coca-Cola. Just, just do it. Do. 
<laughs> As we discussed in our episode on the missions, refer to Padre issues and be wowed at our podcasting capabilities, the Spanish missionaries brought vine clippings from Spain to the San Gabriel mission in 1769, and the huge vine that grew out of these was known as the Viña Madre. Mother vine. Mother vine. Mother, my mother the vine. <laughs> Why would a bunch of uptight Padres need their own wine vine? Well, apparently the local grapes that grow mostly as weeds in the wild around here weren't good enough for them. They needed tried and true grapes from the motherland so that they could make sacramental wine for their services. And I'm not talking about the capital of California. Padre needs his bottle. So this vine grew strong and come 1781 when it was time to found El Pueblo, the Pobladores brought clippings from the Madre with them so they would have wine for themselves and they didn't have to travel the 10 miles to go get some from no Daddy. One, that's a long trip. Not everyone's coming back no, from no. that wine trip. And they might not come back the same religion either. <laughs> Most wine was still being used for religious purposes, but in the mid-1790s, a guy named Jose Maria Verdugo planted the first secular vineyard in all of California on oh his Rancho San Rafael. Lo- Non-religious wine. Oh my God. Oh, it tastes like devil juice. <laughs> the devil's gym bag, which is the name of my favorite B movie. So oh, the devil's tell. <laughs> Will someone tell the devil to clean up his sweat after he gets off the stairmaster? Stairmaster to hell. So this. What was- level did descent do you want to be set at? Uh, burn, baby, burn, or <laughs> eternal damn these love handles. I got there. Hate handles. This was in Rancho San Rafael, which is located on what is now downtown Glendale. And that's why the Americana parking lot still smells like grape pits. That's what it is? Yeah, grape pits. I hope that was a Yelp review you read that from. Grape pits. The wonderful Yelp reviews of the Americana parking lot. (laughs) I guess I parked. This first style of wine being made in LA, since it was made of grapes coming from the mother vine at San Gabriel, was known as Angelica, the wine of the angels. This is a type of wine that no longer exists, but apparently the Galliano Winery in Mira Loma sells a close reproduction of it known as Ancient Angelica. If you care to taste the communion wine of three centuries ago, you can go there and try some, (laughs) which apparently was just like sweet and gross. It tastes like conversions. (laughs) Something also worth mentioning is the giant vine that hangs over Olvera Street. I don't know if you've ever noticed it. If you can take your eyes off of the little turtles that have wagging heads that they're selling. This vine comes out of the courtyard of the Avila Adobe and stretches over the marketplace, giving it a sort of a jungle roof. Modern tests of this vine and the few grapes that it still does produce show that it's a hybrid species of a native species of grape, but also of the first generation of the Vina Madre of San Gabriel, which suggests that this vine was planted around 1818 when the Avila Adobe itself was made, yeah. which makes this vine that hundreds of about-to-get-food-poisoning tourists walk under every day, ignoring this vine is older than the state of California itself. Wow. <laughs> yeah. It's not clear whether it was used for actual winemaking or just for shade, but it is clear that it's the reason that Olvera Street used to be called Calle de los Vinas. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. But still, San Gabriel was the biggest wine producer in town. By 1820, they had some 150,000 vines, making it the most extensive vineyard of all the California missions. But once Mexico took over in 1821 and they started divvying up the land of the missions to give to their friends and family, mm. the vineyards in LA were mostly destroyed. There were a few early Mexican grape growers, such as Tiburcio Tapia, mm. Ricardo Vejas, and Thomas Yorba, but they were all working small scale grape pits. Nothing. The first American grower on record in LA was Joseph Chapman, who planted 4,000 vines in 1826, but still nothing was being made on the same scale as what was going on at San Gabriel in its blood of Jesus guzzling native culture obliterating prime. But as their (laughs) official policy on that matter goes, no sour grapes. And that's been Ellie Minkley. <laughs> that's what we do here at Ellie Minkley. <laughs> we take down things that have been taken down a long time ago. We offend no one. 
Kid Gloves. Um, kid Gloves, the podcast. I don't remember the name of the inflatable gloves that kids, it was commercial. Incredible. Oh, what were those called? Not Rock'em Sock'em. No, it's not what that. It called? was Hit Your Sister Without Your Parent Knowing Gloves. Yeah, that's it. Uh, leave No Marks. But then, for the first time in recorded history, the French came to the rescue. The reason LA was so vulnerable to a French influence was because California being owned by Mexico, the Mexican government, in a ridiculous precursor to Donald Trump, didn't want troublemaking immigrants coming into their country, so they only invited Catholics from countries sympathetic to Mexico, like France. This and a stagnating wine scene left a baguette-shaped void that got filled by a man named, the only name that the person destined to save the LA wine industry could be named, Jean-Louis Vigne. Ah, yeah. That was his only credential. Well, it's... Have you seen my name? Winemaking's my name and winemaking's my game. <laughs> and it's also my name. Did I say that already? <laughs> Here's my credentials. It's my birth certificate. <laughs> so this guy, Vigne, he was born in 1780 in the Cadillac of France. Cadillac, France. <laughs> I bet it sounds a lot better in French. <laughs> nope. Once he grew up and after some stints in Monterey and the Sandwich Islands, which must sound better in French, he came to LA in 1831. Vigne, there's no, I, I'm sure I'm pronouncing his name wrong. That's how you would pronounce it in French, but I don't know how you would, how would you say that name? I would say it just as it's spelled, which is always wrong. Vignus. Yeah. Vignus. Vignus, get in here. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure Vignus, right? Vigne. Let's just call him Vigne. All right. Vigne, Vigne, Pollywog. Someone wants to correct us, then, you know, they love doing that. So Vigne, by nature of his last name or his country of origin, became interested in the growing of wine grapes, but found that the situation he found himself in L.A. was lacking. In 1833, L.A. only had six wine growers spread out over barely 100 acres, growing 100,000 wine vines. Mm -hmm. Wine bottles popping out of the ground. That's how it happens. (laughs) Pick the bottles. (laughs) What they had in 1833, that was less than what San Gabriel alone had going on in its prime. So that same year, Vigne brought... Vigne bought 104 acres. He didn't bring 104 acres of land like Dracula. (laughs) I must sleep in the mother dirt. (laughs) All 104 acres of it. I had to take Paris. They just let it go. (laughs) As the song in the future will say, he bought 104 acres of land to start a vineyard of his own, making it the first large-scale non-religious winery in California. Large-scale, that is. The land he bought was located near what is now Union Station at Alameda, just south of Aliso. What's that? Aliso? you say well shut up because this isn't an interactive podcast so you can pause and say that but here's why it's called that there had been a giant sycamore tree growing in that area for over a hundred years at that time that had been an important gathering spot for the Keech tribe living in this native city that existed before LA plopped on top of it Yang Na the tree was 200 feet wide and 60 feet tall and provided this huge shade that like if there was a meeting like yeah we're going to the tree <laughs> the Spanish word for this type of tree is Aliso which is why Vina named his new winery El Aliso so, and why okay. he himself came to be known around town as Don Luis de la Liso, oh, okay. which I hope to one day be a Don in this city. <laughs> a new Don. <laughs> a red Don. <laughs> Take note, LAPD. <laughs> Don Red Don is <laughs> But Vigna had a problem with the mission grapes that were pretty much the only viable species of grape around. Since they were only used for church services, they weren't very complex of a flavor. It was just like a Welch's. Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> wet and red. <laughs> they just tasted sweet, like I said. So to remedy this, in 1833, he became the first person to import European vines other than the original Mission vines into California. He brought in clippings from the Bordeaux region of France with varieties like Cabernet 
Sauvignon, Cabernet Franc, and Sauvignon Blanc. So he brought those to California. He did this in an effort to diversify the types of wine being made in LA and to make them the new dominant grape in the area over the Mission grape, which had been so entrenched for so long. Even better, he would be the only provider of these new varieties of grapes. Even better, better, since the climate in LA is so similar to that of many parts of France's Mediterranean climate, the new grapes loved it. They they hadn't turned into California raisins yet. They were just (laughs) California grapes, and they were loving it. Get a load of this. (laughs) I'm not wrinkly yet, but I still have sunglasses. Vigno even went so far as to start inviting his family to come move to the area because he predicted that someday California would rival France in quality of wine production. He even went so far as to write the screenplay to Sideways. <laughs> you should have seen my face of yeah. excitement and confusion. Ooh, movie trivia. Yeah. <laughs> I'll say that at a party where we're drinking wine. Mission wine. Sacramento wine. That's the kind of party I go to. It apparently takes time to get a vineyard fully operational if you're going to, you know, like from clipping. So it wasn't until 1837 that El Aliso actually started producing wine. But when it did, it was quality stuff. Yeah. Vigna cared about making the best wine possible so much that he would, this is crazy, he would regularly send bottles of his wine on like cruises from LA around Cape Horn to Boston and back before he sold them, I guess, to age them properly and make sure they don't get seasick. (laughs) Apparently, this was common practice at the time, which as all things- Rocking a baby to sleep? Just, I I don't get it. I guess maybe they think like, well, that's the perfect amount of time it would take for the wine to mature. We'll just like set a timer. Yeah, exactly. Those calendars. Look at that sundial. What are you doing? This is why global warming exists. (laughs) Nonetheless- People were appreciative of his dedication and could definitely taste his superiority, which was on the bottle, taste my superiority. (laughs) By 1839, Vigna had over 40,000 vines. Hmm, Weird. Uh, There's a word that I changed things and it just says Pedro there. (laughs) That's 40,000 vines, Pedro. I think I'm having a stroke in Spanish. (laughs) By 1839, Vigna had over 40,000 vines and in 1840 made the first ever recorded shipment of California wine. By 1842, he was supplying Santa Barbara, Monterey, and San Francisco with shipments out of San Pedro. There it is. Since there were no secular vineyards in those area at that time, the El Aliso wine was of such superior quality that it was there during treaty signings and feasts between the natives and Mexican and American leaders. It was served when William Tecumseh Sherman came to town. It was sent as a gift to U.S. President John Tyler. It was even drank. Here's our first connection of the night. It was drank during, well, second. It was drank during the peace meeting between American Commodore Thomas Jones and Mexican Governor Manuel Mitchell Torina in 1843. Oh, okay. That's what they were drinking. Oh, really? Yeah. Look Isn't that, that interesting? El Aliso soon became the biggest winery in the world, putting out 150,000 bottles a year. Jeez. And then there were the imitators. (laughs) A wilderness man and explorer named William Wolfskill, who we've mentioned briefly in the past, and I know we'll get to in an episode coming up in a couple of months because I know what we're doing. He was given a plot of land by the Mexican government right next to Vinas in 1838 at what is now Alameda and 3rd. And he took it upon himself to start growing wine grapes also. (laughs) He had some 55,000 vines over 145 acres and was the only real competition Vina faced, producing almost 3,000 gallons of wine a year. He's also considered one of the three most important men in California wine history, but he eventually lost interest in wine, and by the time he died in 1866, was mostly focused on a curious citrus you all might learn about real soon, the Noble Orange. The Noble Orange. Orange. 
orange. <laughs> We're going to peel that story. The orange. The finest hybrid of orange and nobility. <laughs> By 1841, 24,000 gallons of wine were being made in LA, and the gold rush up north during that decade just increased the demand for wine further, and since there weren't many vines up north yet, LA had to step up its game. By 1850, LA had over 100 vineyards, most of them along the LA River, and in particular around the Pueblo. In the 1840s, an Italian named Antonio Pelanconi started the first winery on what is now Alvera Street in the conveniently named Pelanconi House. That sounds way familiar. Yeah. I'm thinking of Full House. I'm thinking of Pensacola, Florida. (laughs) But by 1850, when there were a little over 100 wineries in town, 85 of them were in the Pueblo. So most of them were there. In comparison, all of Northern California at this time had about a dozen wineries. Wow, really? Yeah, we were way ahead of them. Oh, they're a bunch of suckers. Yeah, they were all doing beat poetry or something. (laughs) But the demand for minor 49ers wanting to get drunk so bad up north did spark the beginning of a shift out of the south to the north to make it easier to meet the demand. The 1850s brought some major changes to the California wine scene, though. This was when a Hungarian exile named Colonel Augustin Harasi de Mokesa set up shop at the Buena Vista Winery in Sonoma and brought with him cuttings from 165 of the best European vineyards in his crusade to increase the wine quality and variety in California drastically and to get rid of the dominance of the mission grape once and for all. People just hated that mission grape. His efforts paid off, and as a result, he is now considered the father of the modern California wine industry, but his scheming also helped speed up the exodus of vineyards out of LA. Mm -hmm. Back at home, the era of Venus came to an end when in 1855 he sold his vineyard to his Matthews, Jean-Louis Vigne, and Huey. That's his name. <laughs> and Dewey. Mm-hmm. And Louis. Yeah, I guess he had the same name. Same name. <laughs> you got What's the same the name. The same name. You got the same name as your uncle. <laughs> <laughs> so it was Jean-Louis Vigne and Pierre Sansevan for forty-two thousand dollars, making it the biggest real estate sale in LA history at wow. that point. In 1857, the demand for wine was so high that the LA vineyards started planting vines in Anaheim. They had oh. to degrade the what? grape. Grapes and oranges in the same area. There what were is no this? oranges yet. I'll get to that. Oh my god! I'm not. I can't wait. Tell me now. There's oranges. <laughs> so they start planting in I and Anaheim. I'm home back. <laughs> the guy who's dubious about your relations with your uncle. So eventually they also spread into San Bernardino and Riverside because they were running out of room. And by 1858, 500,000 gallons of wine were being made in LA. And over the years, that number just kept going up, making LA the undisputed wine capital of California. But as with most things involving a lot of alcohol, there was a downfall. The Vigna nephews had started branching out more in their alcohol production and were making Madeira wine and brandy and wine bitters. Oh no. But then they decided to get bold and stick their hands on the bubbly. Champagne. Mm-hmm. The first person credited with making champagne or sparkling wine since it's not from Champagne <laughs> region of France. <laughs> <laughs> we have to talk down to these people. <laughs> so the first one making that in LA was Benjamin D. Wilson. Mm-hmm. But when these two nephews decided to try it, they had no caves to store their bottles in. And LA was too hot for such carbonation. So all the bottles exploded. <laughs> Which drove them into serious financial troubles. Like, it's so silly. But like, it's funny that something so celebratory is, they're like, they're panicking about... Break open the bottles. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> it's a bad thing. <laughs> so it was so serious that it eventually led them to sell the winery wow. in 1874. Jeez. To who they sold it, I will get to soon. But for now, that was the end of Vina's Vines. Then in 1882, Southern Cali- Southern California's... Sorry, I almost called it Southern Cali's. <laughs> Everybody, get on the Venga bus. 
1882, Southern California's vineyards were hit with a plague that became known as Anaheim disease, which completely blighted the vineyards. And it never ended. (laughs) The way you could tell a vine was suffering was if the grapes started developing frosted tips and an unquenchable (laughs) taste for carne asada fries. All these grapes taste like Mountain Dew. (laughs) Coca-Cola, do the do. Many of the vines had to be removed and got replaced with the vine of the future, Citrus Groves. That's where, that's when they started coming in. And with that- The cure to uh, Anaheim disease. (laughs) Orange juice. Just take some orange juice. And with that, the LA wine industry was just a shell of its former self and was well into its transition to Northern California, where it now is today. But a last word on Venus himself, his efforts with his winery made LA the birthplace of commercial winemaking in the new world. He turned it into a large-scale business, and for that he's seen as the founder of the California wine industry, despite what the Hungarian exile may be, and for that he is the Vigna of Vigna Street. That goes through what, uh, Trenton? Yeah, it goes right by where his winery was. Okay. That's where it was. That's what founding an industry gets you, a weird street in a strange part of town. <laughs> That's all you get. It's not strange. Um, it's odd. It's, no. it's not strange, it's deadly. <laughs> Vigna went on to die in 1862. <laughs> Speaking of... He's buried at Evergreen Cemetery in East L.A. Oh, okay. But that wasn't quite the end of L.A.'s wine industry. No, there is another. 1910, a young man named Santo Cambianica left Berzo San Fermo in Lombardia, Italy. That's all made up. You made all those things up right now. Oh, no, I was reading Dr. Seuss. <laughs> so he came through Ellis Island and somehow managed to keep that name and made his way to L.A. Most of the major winemaking was being done up north at this point, and that was made even more so as the L.A. River started getting paved over. But that didn't stop young Cambianica from setting up an old boxcar in 1917 yeah, at, s- <laughs> at 737 Lamar Street and painted the words San Antonio Winery on it. San Antonio being St. Anthony, the patron saint of the recovery of lost items. But 1917 was a bad time to pick to start your winery Mm because just three years later, Prohibition hit and suddenly it was illegal for guys like him to work. Before Prohibition... I don't tell my girlfriend my voice quaked. Before Prohibition, there were around 100 wineries in LA, and it sent almost all of them out of business. Yeah. But Cambionica had a special card up his sleeve, and that card, the God of Spades. I never played that card before, but you know what? I feel like if I had it, I'd understand you poker played, a more. You never played Go God? God? No, no. You never played War on God? You never played Religious Wars? <laughs> he was a very religious man, and during his time in LA, he had become very well known in the Italian and Catholic community. So when Prohibition hit, he managed to secure a deal with the Archdiocese of LA to take winemaking back to its local roots and was awarded a permit to allow his winery to continue to produce sacramental wine for use only in services in the Roman Catholic Church. Before Prohibition, San Antonio Winery was making just 2,000 cases of sacramental wine a year, but even though he was only supplying two churches during Prohibition, by 1933, he was making 25,000 a year. Their overall wine production actually increased during Prohibition. Because I'm sure everyone was going to church because they needed to get a taste of the hoot. The country had never been more pious. (laughs) So San Antonio came out stronger than ever after Prohibition, and by the time it was over, they emerged as one of the few wineries in town that was still producing wine, so demand was high, so it was even better for them to get some extra help to keep up since he was running the winery entirely by himself. In 1936, Cambianica's nephew, Stefano Riboli, was sent from Italy to join his uncle in LA as, is he really his uncle? Is he really his uncle? uncle. What's the meaning of this nephew-uncle apprenticeship? So he was 
was sent to LA to apprentice for his uncle and to keep him away from the coming world war that his parents, they smelled that coming. The two of them continued the growth and business the winery saw, but in 1956, Cambianica died and the winery now belonged to Riboli. Hey, uncle's gone, I'm drinking everything. <laughs> Everyone party <laughs> at my winery. Bring a keg of wine. He not only kept the business going strong, but he even improved the business. In the 50s, he added a tasting room to the winery, which made San Antonio one of the first wineries ever to get a tasting room. It started becoming more than just a functioning winery, but also an institution and a tourist destination. Around this time, however, most of the state's vineyards were up north, and it was clear that they were producing better grapes. That's why they were up north, rather than in the increasingly gross Los Angeles. So by the 70s, the Raboli family had bought land for their vineyards in Monterey County, and then in the 80s, more land in the prestigious Rutherford appellation of Napa Valley. Nowadays, they have some 500 acres of vineyards up there, but a lot of their grapes are now coming from the Templeton Gap area of Paso Robles. They now make 4 million bottles of wine a year, including 60,000 cases of sacramental wine for churches all over the country. They're still in the original location as the biggest and oldest continually run winery in the city of Los Angeles, and for that, they have been made a Los Angeles cultural monument. They have a restaurant there and guided tours and tastings, and Stefano Riboli is still alive as of this recording. Once he hears this, it might not be the case. And apparently he hangs out at the winery all day giving out free bottles of wine to people who come take the tour. So take note, winos. But enough about wine. How about an American working man's beer? No, not bathtub corn mash. I'm talking Foster's, which is American for beer. <laughs> I've been saying Foster's the whole time, and they've been like, what are you talking about? Did your uncle cut send you down here to tell me this little ribby ribby joke? <laughs> So after the Civil War, lots of Europeans started immigrating in the U.S., which led to beer gardens gaining a lot of popularity and a higher demand for malted beer rather than America's previous alcoholic choice up to that point, hard cider. In particular, since many of these immigrants were Germans and Bavarians, they brought with them their beer style of choice, which is served cold rather than the lukewarm British style of beer that was being served at bars before. I've gotten two conflicting reports on the first brewer slash brewery in L.A., but one of the dates are way before the other, so either some very credible sources are incorrect or they mean that one was the first brewery and one was the first individual brewer. So refer all your complaints to the actual historians mm-hmm. of this city. The first brewery in LA was the New York Brewery. Okay, that doesn't make sense. <laughs> it gets even more confusing. It was at 3rd and Main, the future home of Al Levy's Cafe, home of the Oyster Cocktail, oh, yeah. in 1854. That's when it started by a man named either Christopher or Henry Kuhn. As you can tell, not much is really documented about this place. Other than that, it won an award in 1864 for best logger from who I don't know. And it was taken over by a man named Philip Louth in 1880 and closed down in 1887. But what was made clear was that they had a competitor named Gambrinus who opened in 1856 at first in Los Angeles by John Murat. And history remembers very well that their beer was god awful. Like that's one thing that everyone agrees on. This brewery was sold, this gross brewery, it was sold in 1874 and moved to second in spring and renamed City Brewery and Saloon. But you can't rename name taste and they closed down by 1875 then there was the man that i've read was the city's first brewer jacob philippi who we once talked about briefly who had a beer garden and saloon on top of the lizard people's fort moore hill Ah, listen to creepy haunted three for that story which opened in 1882 and was called the new york brewery What the? I don't get it. So either history has its facts mixed up, or this is the weirdest coincidence in LA history, which this was a rowdy place on top of the hill that had drunk people that would roll down the hill at the end of the night. And in 1887, it was sold to Mary Banning. So if someone has a definitive... 
maybe is that from Animal House? Yeah, Banning House. Banning is from House is from Animal. Yeah. That's they, the Animal House. They they ban yeah the animals. So if someone has a definitive answer on which of these New York breweries is really first, please let us know. But as it stands, there is a place called New York Brewery that either okay. was the first brewery in Los Angeles or has the first brewer in Los Angeles. Or it's the farthest brewery outside of New York that's still <laughs> somehow part of they New York. They were trying to plant their flag. <laughs> It'll connect. Watch. <laughs> It'll all be New York one day. New, 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 new New York. <laughs> but the first brewery to really start the beer industry in LA opened in 1874. As you might recall, that was the year the Vigna nephews had to sell El Aliso winery because they had blown up all their champagne. Right. Now for the second half of that story. The winery was sold and turned into the Philadelphia Brewing Company. Oh my God, guys. <laughs> The name LA just doesn't sell. <laughs> it doesn't sound like LA Philadelphia. Beer. Who wants to say that? Nothing. Philadelphia <laughs> cream cheese. That's what we want. If I call it LA beer, bagels. people will think it's going to be La Beer. <laughs> And I'm not drinking no lady beer. No, I want paw beer. <laughs> I'll have Al beer. <laughs> La Cerveza, please. The most notable part of the Philadelphia Brewing Company was that it was on the land of the old El Aliso winery. But oh. then things started to take off in 1882 when it was bought by two men. The first was a Bavarian immigrant from Wollumzach named Joseph Meyer, who moved to LA with his younger brother in the early 1870s and got a job at the New York Brewery before he quit and bought the Eintracht Saloon at 163 North Spring Street. Spring Steen, Spring Street in 1881 on the precipice of the big year, 1882. His early life story isn't quite so eventful, but his later life sure is sad. The second man had a much more interesting early life, and his name was George Zobelin. He was born in 1846 in Grafenberg, Bavaria. He was the son of a brewer, a Milwaukee brewer. When he was 17, he apprenticed as a brewer himself, but when the Seven Weeks War broke out in 1866, he was taken prisoner for several weeks. They didn't say exactly how many weeks, but it's safe to assume not more than seven <laughs> between six to eight in 1867 he came to california opening up grocery stores in mining boom towns but once the silver boom was over in 1869 he came to la and opened up a grocery store at sixth and spring but he soon wanted to get back into brewing and ended up getting a job bookkeeping at the mythical new york brewery in 1870 which is where he met joseph meyer the two got it in their heads that hey we can do this we like beer we know what we're doing you can do the books you can do the thing all uh, you got a big mustache and i talk a lot <laughs> you have a hat i have a hat <laughs> so then came the big year 1882 when meyer and zobelin bought the philadelphia brewing company and renamed it meyer and zobelin it wasn't so crazy that these two no-name german immigrants bought an entire brewing factory because they were part of the same wave of german immigrants buying up brewing factories like adolphus bush and frederick miller okay yeah same class they grew the factory into a very profitable enterprise and the compound itself grew as well which is why once the 101 was eventually built it had to be curved in that area wow. like it still is today that's the footprint of this brewery but even as it grew and changed they always protected the sycamore aliso tree that had been there since the time of Yang Na. At this mm -hmm. point, it was over 400 years old, but in 1892, one of its branches fell and crushed an entire beer wagon. Wow. So Meyer, with Zobelin begging him not to, had all of the branches cut off the tree, oh leaving just the trunk, which God. killed it. A 400-year-old sacred tree. And it was killed because it, it destroyed a beer yeah. wagon. Because a beer man... What? Yeah. Are you serious? <laughs> then, in 1895, the dead trunk was cut down by a local lumberjack named William Willoughby. The tree was so famous that people were taking its wood chips as souvenirs. This tree was said to have been located 153 feet north of Commercial Street and 88 feet east of Gary, which is apparently under a 101 on-ramp right now. So there's probably... Someone's defecating on that, as we speak. Oh, my God. That's 
bums me out so much. But remember that this tree, which will bum you out even more, had been very special to the native tribes, which maybe is why from then on Meyer's life was obviously cursed. <laughs> Get this. On December 16th, 1886, after the tree was dead, a vat exploded in the factory and left Meyer horrendously burned on his oh face and hands. God, I like two-face. <laughs> In 1897, his teenage daughter died. Then Meyer himself was struck with a serious heart disease and had to be confined to his house at 1606 South Figueroa for two years before he finally died on July 11th, 1905. There's more coming, but we'll get into that as we go. Meyer owned a majority of the brewing company, so he left control of it to his son, Freddie, which Zabellin did not like. So on August 1st, 1905, he sued for control of the company and eventually got it in March 1906. However, you wouldn't think a year-long lawsuit for control of a company would create an undesirable work environment, but it did. So in 1907, the Meyer sons bought Zobelin out of the company for $500,000, and he struck out on his own, which I'll get into soon. But first, the shocking conclusion, and I do mean conclusion, of the Meyer family. Once Zobelin left, the company was renamed Meyer Brewery, but in 1910, Freddie Meyer died, his son, who was in control, and then control of the company went to his brother, Eddie. Here's yet another crossover. Eddie Meyer was a big baseball fan. In 1910, he gained control of a team in the Southern California Trolley League called the Myers. He also came into control of the Vernon Tigers of the Pacific Coast League and made Meyer beer a big part of advertising in those games. He's the one who brought the Tigers to Venice. He wanted them to play in a stadium on a pier that went out into the ocean, but a storm destroyed the pier during construction and they never rebuilt it. Find out more about that team in our episode of Root 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 for the Home Team or listen again and experience the magic one more time. Eddie kept the company going strong, but then the prohibition hit and he managed to keep it going like many breweries did by making soft drinks and yeah. near beer, which uh, I don't know if you'll get into that. A little bit. It's, not much. it's beer that was under the 0.5% yeah. alcohol content. That was the limit of the Volstead Act. Mm-hmm. All the same, on March 30th, 1932, 10 federal agents raided the Meyer Brewery and found that they had been brewing not so near beer illegally. <laughs> Real beer. <laughs> Close beer. <laughs> Eddie swore he so close it's beer (laughs) (laughs) can't believe it's not beer (laughs) oh it is Eddie swore he wasn't aware of this but two employees were arrested and he lost control of the company for seven years as the federal government took it over oh boy and they ran that baseball team all the way to the world series (laughs) you guys are gonna do it or you're all going to prison (laughs) still this wasn't the worst thing to happen to Eddie around this time as the Meyer family curse continued and his wife died in a car crash in 1933 then in 1943 the curse finally cleaned house once from for all when Eddie himself died alone in a fire in his house. Shouldn't have cut down that tree, buddy boy. No, leave trees alone. (laughs) Old ancient trees, don't touch them. No, you don't need more wood. Let it crush a truck. It wants its due. <laughs> it needs its sacrifice. <laughs> but Meyer Brewing went on, but after World War II, their brand needed a little pepping up, so they changed their recipe a little and renamed their lager Brew 102. Here's how the jingle went. More than 100 beers we did brew, perfecting the new finer Brew 102. In the East and the West, Meyer beer is the best. Wonderful, wonderful Brew 102. Did we write that? (laughs) That's how bad it is. (laughs) Apparently, Lazy Rhymes was all it took back then because the new Brew 102 became very popular. And by the end of the 40s, because it had a number in it. No one had seen that before. (laughs) Number in the song. (laughs) By the end of the 40s, Meyer Brewing was the fifth largest brewer in the state. And by the 50s, they were making 370,000 barrels of beer a day, which they hung on the wall and sang about all day as they slowly took them down one at a time. But back to the split in 1907. Zabellin was out of beer and he needed a drop quick. Luckily, there was one place that was on the market, the Los Angeles Brewing Company, finally. A place with the guts to name it. They had opened in 1897 at 1920 North Main Street, right where the San Antonio Winery 
winery would eventually be by mm-hmm. P. Max Kunrick and Edward Mathy. They were right next to the LA River and were using that water to make a lager, mission malt tonic, and a near beer called Temperance. And since all of that sounded gross, yeah. Zabellin bought the brewery right after he split from the Myers in 1907 and he turned it into a really great place, not followed by an awful curse from a dead tree. They had 20 acres of land between the river and the railroad tracks and they started making things like Old Mission Tap, Old Tap Lager, a potent Bach, and the most popular beard called sim- beer called simply... Oh, I've been talking about beer Beards this whole time. <laughs> beard factories. Oh, no, dude. I, wait, let's re-record. <laughs> oh, my. Mm, nice wet beards. <laughs> Delicious, frothy, heady beards. <laughs> so this popular beer was called simply East Side. I like that. Yeah, East Side because the brewery was on the East Side and the entire place was also sometimes went by the name East Side Beverage Company. That's so simple it could be hipster. I, I wouldn't be surprised. Okay. Well, it kind of, you'll see. Zabellin set up a tap room inside the brewery called the Old Mission Room. Everyone's still obsessed with that mission. That became a very popular tourist destination and even cooler was that the entire brewery was unionized. Oh, great. In a time when the city was shockingly anti-union, yeah. all workers in Zabellin's brewery were well-paid Paid. They got vacation time, had safe working conditions, paid lunches, and here's, you're going to love this, every hour, each worker got a seven-minute beer break where they could go drink free, unlimited beer. You're right, I love Every hour, work for 53 minutes, and then go get quickly drunk. I like my employees to be buzzed at all times throughout the day. <laughs> Never let them fade out. <laughs> you keep that fire lit, boys. <laughs> and if they wanted to take any beer home, they got 50% off. Wow. But then the prohibition hit and put an end to the fun. To survive these dark and dry times, they rebranded themselves the Zesto Beverage Company and made apple cider, pineapple juice, and a near beer version of East Side. Turns out they weren't too good at making apple cider because their batches kept fermenting too much and turning out so they had to stop selling it. <laughs> I swear we want apple we juice. Didn't know. We, we didn't, didn't know. know. We didn't know. Also, nobody wanted pineapple juice, so then they started making root beer, but what was selling really well was the alcohol that they would extract from the East Side beer. I bet. The way they were making this East Side near beer was that they'd make the beer like normal and then extract the alcohol from it, and there was a huge market for this denatured alcohol in companies that made things like paint and vanilla extract and also doctors and dentists. Oh, like, like alcohol. Yeah, it's not either. drinkable like yeah. paint reliever. Yeah. Uh, drinkable. Doctors under prohibition were allowed to buy five gallons of alcohol a year and dentists could have two. They were also able to sell this true grain, as they called it, to hospitals and drugstores. But since they were still brewing Eastside beer normally all those years, once prohibition ended, they were all ready to go selling alcohol again, like yeah. immediately without missing a beat. All they had to do was just don't remove the alcohol. Yeah. We, we know how to do this. <laughs> so at 12.01 a.m. on April 7th, 1933, when Prohibition ended, hundreds of people were lined up on Main Street to watch Walter Huston say a few words, and then Gene Harlow smashed a bottle of East Side on the side of the first post-Prohibition delivery truck from the once again named Los Angeles Brewing Company with their new catchphrase, put East Side inside. I like that. Yeah. They had a whole fleet of trucks packed with beer and protected by armed guards that delivered to anybody who needed it in the city. And in that one night, the first First night after Prohibition, they made a quarter of a million dollars providing what? beer to the city that hadn't had it legally in over a decade. That's amazing. Yeah. Zobelin died in 1936, but his son took over and kept the beer flowing. In 1937, they started selling beer in cans and expanded their brews to include Eastside Ale, a brown derby beer, and luxury extra dry Pilsner, but classic Eastside was always their bestseller. Yeah. It was considered the working man's beer, especially because of the way the company treated its employees. But then World War II hit and all 
all of the tires of the delivery trucks were needed to turn into bullets. But no matter, they just bought a bunch of Belgian horses pulling the beer wagons. Yeah. That's not a problem until the horses really need to be turned into, beer, into bullets. <laughs> yeah, they got like cool. the Clydesdales, the Budweiser Clydesdales. Copyright infringement. They would even hire young men who were of the age to be drafted in the military when most other companies wouldn't because they knew that they'd only be there temporarily. They would still hire these people. It was a good company. They even had a housing complex next door to the factory for any workers who wanted to live there. The working man's beer. They cared about people. I like East Side. East Side. East Side. Keep inside Yeah, I say east side. Keep, keep inside east side. <laughs> the brewery faced even more trouble around this time when a paint company moved in across the street from them. You wouldn't think, well, it's a big deal, but just yeah. a paint company. Beer absorbs odors and flavors, so all the fumes coming from oh the paint God. factory made all their beer taste like paint. <laughs> I would love that. Fortunately, the city was on the brewery's side because, the east side, because the workers there were mostly voters who would always vote in favor of their employee who treated them so well. So the city wanted to get on their good side. So the city got the paint company moved out of the area. They did not like that. Mm -hmm. But then in 1948, a company from Milwaukee decided that they wanted to expand their operations onto the West Coast and made the LA Brewing Company an offer it couldn't refuse. And they now became owned by Pabst. Oh, okay. Yeah. But for the time, it was still being run by the Zabellan family, not the Milwaukee Fat Cats. They were they had nothing to do. Until 1953, when Pabst expanded the factory and ended up demolishing the worker housing and also Jeez. all the building's charm and took full control of the factory and started using it to brew Pabst Blue Ribbon. Boo. <laughs> boo. Boo Ribbon. That boo ribbon. East Side was... I don't support PBR anymore. It's over. No, they don't I, like unions. They don't like unions. I'm going on record saying that. East Side was still being made there, although as an afterthought to Blue Blue Ribbon. It even, Eastside became the official beer of Dodger Stadium in 1962. Really. Yeah. But eventually it became less and less of a priority and was turned into a discount beer named Eastside Old Tap. This decline in local beer power started when major national companies like Anheuser-Busch and mm-hmm. Schlitz opened up giant factories in Van Nuys in 1954, driving the local guys out of business. Budweiser factory still there. I drove past it on the way yeah. here. Got a good sniff. But the Schlitz one shut down in 1990. The Meyer Brewery had been sold in 1958 and kept making their brew 102 until 1972 when they closed down for good and then got demolished in 1985. But a bunch of artifacts from the old Myron Zabellan days were uncovered when they were doing renovations on Union Station in the late 80s. They found a bunch of old cans and imprint of a tree trunk. (laughs) The Eastside Brewery didn't fare much better when Pabst abandoned them in 1979 and they shut down. The building that brewery building itself was registered as a historic cultural Los Angeles city landmark in 1992 and in the early 2000s opened up again as the brewery artists colony which at the time it opened was the biggest live and work artist colony in the world. I know that place too. So that's the main beer and wine story of LA but here's some pieces of cheese and nuts to go along with that. One drink worth mentioning that was invented in LA was born in 1941. Started with a man named John Martin who had bought the Smirnoff brand from a broke Russian named Rudolf Kunet in 1930s. Martin was head of GF Hublin and Bros, and he wanted to promote Smirnoff as a popular brand in the U.S. So he went to his friend Jack Morgan, who owned the Cock and Bowl at the Sunset Strip. (laughs) Morgan's place was famous for making their own ginger beer. And depending on what you want to believe, either to just get people excited for Smirnoff or because nobody was buying it, and Morgan had a bunch of ginger beer that was about to go bad, they decided to combine the two, and the Moscow Mule was born. Really? Yeah. LA drink, huh? LA's official drink, except for the Shirley Temple. What's it called? Moscow Mule? And again... 
Again, a third one. Again, they did <laughs> Los it. Angeles Mule. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't. No one wants to like own up to like. Yeah, I'm from LA. Los Angeles Mule. Just call it a burrito. <laughs> I'll drink it. The liquid burrito. <laughs> the Moscow burrito. <laughs> There's also a possibility that the drink was actually made by the bartender at the Cock and Bowl, Wes Price. Supposedly, Morgan's girlfriend owned a copper company, which is why they went in the copper mugs to oh, serve yeah. it. It was all just like oh, we have all this extra stuff. We gotta yeah. move this. Regardless, the Moscow Mule was invented at the Cock and Bowl in 1941. It became a popular drink in Hollywood until the 50s when anything Russian was bad. Red Dawn. <laughs> Dawn, Red Dawn. <laughs> nice to meet you. <laughs> I now push the atomic button. Now to sort of transition into yours, I'm going to talk just a few of the oldest pre-prohibition bars okay. that you might get into. I might, yeah. But I don't know. We'll, we'll see. The oldest one I could find was Big Dean's Oceanfront Cafe. It started as the Laring's Lunchroom in 1902 at 1615 Oceanfront Walk in mm-hmm. Santa Monica. But this was more of a cafe that sold alcohol than an actual bar. Yeah. Then there was the Golden Gopher. I talked about a little bit about it. 417 West 8th Street downtown. They've had the same liquor license since 1905. Then there's, of course, Coles, which opened in 1908. Mm-hmm. They had the city's first check cashing service in the bar. So they did great business with that. If you're also unaware, we talked about Coles in the um city bites not city bites we talk about it in um well yeah city bites but always talk about it um the killing me larry yes yeah part of the pacific electric building the specific electric specific electric building yeah Coles was also the first place to get their liquor license back in la the day prohibition ended then there's the townhouse in venice they opened in 1915 as minotti's bar which greg's gonna get to some of the other old ones i found were urkel's bar (laughs) that opened in manhattan beach i did do it (laughs) (laughs) have you been brewing alcohol in here I did do that. <laughs> so they opened in 1927. Harvell's Blues Club in 1931. Formosa Cafe, 1934. The Frolic Room. Yep. Apparently it was opened by some guy named Freddie Frolic. I hope we'll get into him sometime in the future. Yeah. They went public in 1934, but they had been a speakeasy for vaudeville performers at the Pantages since 1930. See, that I didn't know. Tom Bergen's, which opened in 1936, where LACMA now is, is Tom Bergen's Horseshoe Tavern and Thoroughbred Club, but they moved to its current location in 1945. Then there's the Alhambra Cocktail Lounge in 1936, and the mint in 1937. Now, Greg, why can't I drink alcohol and eat more? Prohibition was a long time coming for something so unnecessary. Although at the time it wasn't <laughs> seen as it. so unnecessary. Yeah, it's stupid, but it was necessary at the time. <laughs> if you were an alcoholic in 1916, then the Great Depression doesn't start in 1929. It starts in 1917. It was a depression, but for like booze. Your liver was the dust bowl. Just to give like a quick history of prohibition, the move towards prohibition was spearheaded by three groups. The Anti-Saloon League, led by S.T. Montgomery, the Prohibition Party. The Anti-Fun party. League. Yeah, the Anti-Fun League. Also known as the Women's Christian Temperance Union. Those old biddies. <laughs> the WCTU again. <laughs> the Temperance Movement, which in America went back it to... It is nice to WCTU. <laughs> but the Christian. The Temperance Movement, which in America went back to the early 1800s on the East Coast, purposed itself with saving the household. Not, not That wasn't its sole purpose, but that was kind of like one of the more main... Yeah, f- keep dad from points. beating uh, little Thank Sunny. You. It was specifically meant for the women and children by pulling the rug... <laughs> protection. For protection. <laughs> by pulling the rug from underneath alcohol, specifically the rug from underneath men. <laughs> Just literally pulled the rug from underneath men. <laughs> stop him. Yeah, most women at the time didn't have like paying jobs. They ran households. Having a job was like male folks thing. And a male would get paid and in the spirit of the era would gamble and drink an entire week's worth of pay away in like a single night without providing for his family and the family suffers. And as soon as anybody presses in on that he can get, because he's drunk, would violently probably beat his wife and children. So it was this toxic environment all around the country. The golden days. <laughs> Wasn't the past great? It's just PC culture. <laughs> what, I can't beat my own family anymore? What, I have to then go beat I his family? Yeah, why did I give birth to my wife? <laughs> 
If I can't beat her. <laughs> so yes, alcoholism was seen as a major epidemic and moderating it, if not completely stopping it, was seen as a necessity. The temperance movement gained momentum in the late 19th century and through the early years of the 20th century with Christian morals and values as the guiding light. I love those. I know, they taste so good. In 1906, the population of Los Angeles was 56% Protestant and most of them were native-born Midwesterners who'd come over here who truly believed in prohibition because in smaller towns... That's not 2016. Oh yeah, no, this is all wrong. In smaller towns, cutting off the alcohol supply is a feasible task mm-hmm. that might actually mm-hmm. work soon enough politicians began supporting prohibition because supporting it meant you were in support of good clean families who were moral and that looks good on your as part of your platform yeah. so there were senators who truly didn't even believe in it would push for it and it all came to a head when the 18th amendment to the constitution was ratified under the informal title the volstead act as you mm-hmm. mentioned in 1917 the volstead act went state by state for ratification passing as a law so now the three-headed beast which is the anti-saloon league the wctu and the prohibition party they started eat away at la the anti-saloon league achieved its first victory in 1899 when they successfully limited the number of saloons in los angeles to 200 oh no only 200 saloons only 200 that's more than there are people in the city at that time <laughs> you have all personalized saloons <laughs> two saloons saloon. for every drug <laughs> In 1904, the Anti-Saloon League launched a campaign to rid the city of them completely. The Gandir Ordinance was put into effect, and this functioned... Where are the bandits going to hide out? <laughs> we got to go to caves now? I have my champagne in there, so I want to explode. <laughs> Get out of there. Under the Gandir Ordinance, this was put into effect, and it functioned against saloons in two ways. It made it illegal to sell liquor containing over 14% of alcohol within it, obviously, and it also limited the hours a saloon could stay open. Initially, when it first started, they were pushed to close at midnight, but under the Gandir Ordinance, named after Daniel Gandir, who was the superintendent uh, of the don't know of the superintendent of the anti-saloon league hey what's your position in the anti-saloon league again <laughs> uh inferior intendant <laughs> mm, don't worry stop asking questions <laughs> they were initially pushed to close at midnight after the gandir ordinance they had to operate between 11 a.m to 9 p.m and then after that they were just completely closed yeah, that's good enough thanks uh <laughs> at some point i read that under the gandir ordinance you can get arrested for selling beer that contained 2.75 percent alcohol in it but then that was overturned in 1919 as being crazy pants bananas mm-hmm. or crazy banana pants one of those <laughs> two sorry i got the notes wrong <laughs> these are banana crazy pants <laughs> excuse me its initial purpose at prohibition was to prohibit the sale of intoxicating liquors not liquors containing a slight percentage of alcohol which is how near beer works yeah yeah or as uh, medicinal beer so by 1917 the city voted itself to be completely dry two years before the federal amendment took effect los angeles was the largest city in the country at the time totally without legal drinking parlors a saloonless city no beer my my ailments what am i gonna do about my ailments what is gonna cure what ails me <laughs> so the prohibition boulder begins rolling in 1970 and then there's like a sort of prohibition probation period in between <laughs> prohibition probation the pp you can make me pp <laughs> for not drinking any beer i sure have a lot of pp here <laughs> everyone's feeling this whole pp thing between 1918 and 1919 was this sort of period where the papers were reporting that the pp <laughs> <laughs> the papers for the prohibition probation period <laughs> p u did i tell you that all old movies have a lot of q words in them yeah. okay yeah. like we're quarreling it was quite queer i know well about your psychotic problems <laughs> <laughs> the papers at the time were reporting that there was thirteen thousand less arrests made since the restrictions had been enacted that's ridiculous you're right that's way too many the headline of this paper i read was called the first saloonless year many saloons had to become cafes like you said or soft beverage establishments others became gospel halls others mm-hmm. just shut down completely gospel. Uh, 
well, saloons, once they shut down, they became like gospel. Oh, it wasn't like a saloon anymore. They're like, yeah. oh, we're going to move a church in here. Like, oh, <laughs> we'll purify the area. <laughs> Papers reported that men of Los Angeles were starting to appreciate their families and homes once again. <laughs> Women and children were happier with that. Property value was increasing. All it took was one year of driveness to drive all the men back to their miserable homes. <laughs> there was a 10 acre inebriate farm on Los Feliz Road in Frogtown that helped men dry out. It afterwards treated women with STDs. They should hook them up with those sopping wet men. <laughs> Poor families were less dependent on the municipality than ever before in the city. San Pedro was no longer a drunken port town like it was before. Now it was a prosperous little city by the bay full of churches and homes and cafes. <laughs> it was now San Francisco. <laughs> no longer would the residents of San Pedro see Catholic priests stumbling out of saloons midday uh, like it was reported. <laughs> Apparently the harbor areas, Long Beach, San Pedro, Venice, and Santa Monica were all troublesome areas because they were port areas. Yeah. So when the initiatives and ordinances were starting to be issued, they wanted, the city wanted those areas to be bone dry. No liquor, nothing. Dry up the ocean. <laughs> and sand, as far as I can see, just sand and dirt, fish bones, and fish bone, which were just starting at the time. Things were, you know, looking up in that first year, July 1919, was when there was supposed to be a total blackout, see what I did there, of alcohol across the city, with no end to prohibition in sight. Keep this in mind. Cross sight. Uh, <laughs> oh boy. Keep this in mind. my mom I made that joke. If there were that many saloons in town before prohibition, and they were all shut down, think of how many people were now out of work bartenders servers grape growers in northern california like everybody wife beaters wife beaters and <laughs> and they didn't have anything to drink anymore prohibition takes effect. the wife beating industry went way down i got laid off again prohibition takes effect nationally in january of 1920 and all those criminals rubbed their dirty little hands together and said let the games begin <laughs> but we already did it three years ago and we're a town built on crooks and weirdos so mm-hmm. just try to stop us <laughs> now i don't want to get too much let into the ga- games continue <laughs> <laughs> i don't want to get too much into gangsters and mobs in this episode that's another episode that we plan on doing so yeah. i'm just going to try to keep it as bootleggy as possible. Mm-hmm. Keep in mind, the population of LA in 1920 at the beginning of Prohibition was 36,000. By 1930, the population would be 235,000 people. What? Think about how much that expense in 10 years during Prohibition. And as the underline of all this, Hollywood's silent era is in full swing. And by yeah. 1927, they have talkies and it becomes an even bigger business. Mm. That's the underlying thing of all this. First of all, like you were saying, there were legal ways to get alcohol. There was sacramental wine, which was okay as long as it was truly the blood of the Lord. As long as, as, long as, as it came straight from his bloody hands. <laughs> Just squeeze as much out of that crucifix as possible. Got any more in you? <laughs> this is del- I mean, I know you're in pain, but this is delicious. Your finest batch, brother. Are you juicing him over there? Yeah, he's still juicing. <laughs> Apparently, also, you can get a prescription pint of whiskey for anything from a toothache to a flu to a terrible case of the sobers. So it's kind of like how marijuana is now. Yeah, basically. It, that was, I'm it, sure it wasn't as easy, but... Yeah. On oh, my back. I need whiskey. And you could refill that... I need a Moscow mule. ...prescription every 10 days. Whoa. Also, to be clear, Prohibition made it illegal to manufacture, transport, import, export, and sell alcoholic beverages, but it was still legal to consume it in your private residence at your leisure. So you better believe people stocked up and hoarded it before <laughs> it was all enacted. Now to the crimes and city fun stuff. Old smelly Vernon, California, which is south of downtown and outside... Vinci? <laughs> south of downtown and outside of the then city limits became a new hotspot for drinking fun. The Vernon fun. Tigers. The Vernon Tigers, thank you. Not only was baseball popular... Myers Tigers. Myers Tigers. Baseball was very popular in Vernon, so was boxing. boxing Boxing promoter Jack Doyle had a saloon, aptly titled Jack Doyle Saloon, and it boasted about having the longest bar in the world. Oh, oh I remember we talked we about this. We did talk this. about this. Remember, it, remember, it had a contend with Agricultural Park, which also had the I longest bar. I still don't know what that means. It's just a long bar. It doesn't, like, <laughs> How when long I, could it be? It's weird because I, when I read the description, it's 100 feet long. I'm like, okay. But then I said I read some of the speakeasy, which was supposed to be hidden, had 300 foot long bars. So I don't really know. But they, apparently that's what it's known for was we had the longest bar. Imagine like a bar trying to compete with that. 
that. I don't get it. Like, like how do you have park. the room? I went to Agricultural Park last week. That bar isn't even that long. I could beat that. Like, imagine having that much competition in you. Give me some plank wood. We have the tallest bar in the world. Like, who <laughs> want? Like, just give me alcohol. We have the most chairs at a bar. <laughs> They're just stacked up. You can't sit in them. But we got the most. <laughs> the Agricultural Park closed in 1913, so we didn't even have to contend with it, really. <laughs> at the longest bar, which, like I said, was 100 feet long, apparently, there were 37 bartenders ringing up, That's like, 30 cash registers. Absurd. It's absurd. That sounds like the set of a musical from the <laughs> from the 30s, not a... It's something that is way too long for its own good. <laughs> something that is 12 minutes when it should be two minutes. Behind the bar hung a sign that read, if your children need shoes, don't buy any booze, which gives new sadness to the gambling expression, Papa needs a new pair of shoes, <laughs> because it's probably for his children, and the desperation for them is because he can't drink without them. <laughs> it's a vicious cycle. <laughs> Kid needs shoes, Papa needs shoes, Papa needs beer. <laughs> Papa has got a brand new bag, but he doesn't have any shoes to put in it. Nothing in the bag. He's got, he's got a new bag. There were peepholes in the ceiling because Doyle had an upstairs office and he had to keep an eye on the happenings below. Wait a minute. So he would like crawl on the ground looking? I bet he like peek over. Oh, I was thinking it's like a peephole like in a door. And he's that's, like, What's going on? That's kind of weird because if it's big enough for you to look through just casually, you could step in it and fall through the yeah. Very careful, man. The saloon was attached to a boxing arena, which was also owned by Doyle, apparently. And boxing and baseball were popular in Vernon. They had the Pacific Coast League, the Vernon Tigers. Doyle Saloon made it as far as 1919 before it was kaput. On the last night it was open, 60 bartenders served a thousand sad customers for Doyle's <laughs> last call. Is this that why you were saying that it reminds you of True Detective Season 2? There's another thing, but oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's Those also... the tunnels, yeah. The two things together. But, but yeah, like a guy running a boxing thing in yeah. Vernon and having his eye on the bar. And uh, also, this is just as cohesive as True Detective Season 2. Ooh, yeah. Ooh, yeah. Vernon also had the Vernon Country Club where one can go and buy, dance, and party with whatever stars they were willing to go to Vernon. Chaplin and Arbuckle. <laughs> fatty, Chap- fatty Arbuckle. And Charlie Chaplin were known to frequent Doyle's Saloon. Really? But of course they were. Not Mary Pickford. But truly, I came across so she many... dare. <laughs> I came across so many weird, interesting things about Vernon that I want to dedicate a whole episode to Vernon and Maywood because it's like it's big on sports and vice and local corruption that is like pretty recent. Yeah, Whatever. it's a strange place. Yeah, so it comes down to the Crooked Boys. I try to keep this set, like I said, as bootleg as possible. Now the men who built this town and drew people in, such as LA Times publisher Harry Chandler, who's partly responsible for the Hollywood sign, had supplied local politicians with advertising, publicity, and the money needed to sell properties and get people moved in and grow all the businesses and put people in political seats. This created a very uncomfortably close relationship between business owners who did not have moral fortitude and politicians who most likely had no moral fortitude. Hey now, Greg, this isn't real time with Bill Maher. (laughs) What is this, The Daily Show? Don't you remember our kid gloves? (laughs) You put those back on. Your knuckles are showing. Hey, you meant that. (laughs) Hey, ouch. Ouch. After the exchange for services, the business barons of the city now had the city government tucked in their pocket. The problem with all this is that the criminal element of the gangster variety also moved westward or south, whatever, and now had hopes of securing local politicians to use and abuse. The only folk who could stop them were the Los Angeles Police Department, who could be paid to work for any crooked bastard that they <laughs> paid the highest. So if we're talking crooked cops, we got to talk about Guy McAfee, the captain, as they called him. Oh boy. He was a captain of the LA Vice Squad, or as they're known, the Purity Squad. How adorable. He was discharged from the LAPD in 1970, right when the prohibition took effect, for running a craps game in the assembly room of the police headquarters. Then he got his badge reinstated and was assigned to the Purity Squad. <laughs> Part of the McAfee's job was to get acquainted with the underbelly of Los Angeles, get to know the owners and the proprietors and nut clubs and brothels and gambling rings. And he said, you know, this seems pretty neat. (laughs) 
Maybe I should get me one of these saloons and brothels. He even ended up, I don't know if he married the madam of a brothel or he turned his wife Marie into a madam. Oh, but that. boy. Either way. Like, Either way, I'm going. Another man's wife? So apparently, like, before a big raid on a speakeasy, other LAP officers would often notice the captain whistling into the phone. And when the cops got there, all the damning evidence had disappeared. Wow. How very odd. He eventually left the LAPD because they didn't pay enough. <laughs> Rampart 1.0. He slipped quite easily into a crime boss status along the likes of the combination, Albert Marco and Charlie the Wolf Crawford, who we'll get into. Anyways, McAfee opened up a speakeasy and casino on such a trip called the Clover Club, where liquor was served, quote, discreetly, even though it probably didn't need to be. Keep in mind that later... Had a mustache on. <laughs> keep in mind that later in life, McAfee pretty much influenced and directly had a heavy hand in the creation of the Las Vegas Strip. Really? That's how, yeah, th- that's how crooked this guy was. That's so weird. Now, this isn't a gangster episode, like I was saying, but reading is... My... It's only gangsta. Yeah, so my reading is limited, but for my guitar, before there was Cohen, there was Crawford, the wolf, the gray wolf of Spring Street, mm-hmm. or Good Time Charlie. I'll keep it brief and pertinent. Charles Crawford was this momster out of Seattle who fled Washington for pretty much everything he comes to do in Los Angeles. Once in LA, he opened up the Maple Bar. Yes, like the donut. Mm. Please stop it, Greg. I'm hungry. On Fifth and Maple, outside of downtown LA. Very ritzy, very luxurious bar, casino, and very humble bordello. Mm, was there cream inside? <laughs> you better believe. <laughs> Dripping. Their clientele included politicians, judges, and public officials of the like. Of Having this establishment meant that he became familiar with the right local powerful people who could keep his crime stuff on the right side of the law. Soon enough, Crawford is running a group known as the City Hall Gang, a well-known crime syndicate mostly made up of local politicians and public officials that he had in his pocket. One of his top aides was a former USC star and law law school graduate turned political fixer Kent Kane Parrott and together they were able to secure the mayor's seat for one of their pals George Cryer in 1921 as a mayor of Los Angeles. Hmm. Sort of. On paper he was but all the decisions were pretty much going down to the puppeteers Crawford and mostly Parrott. Parrott was basically the de facto mayor. interesting that the Parrott was the actual master. Think about it. <laughs> it's a think piece. We're submitting this to the New Yorker brewery. Parrott pretty much was in a position to operate the Harbor Commission and the LAPD and this was for all of the 20s. So basically, crime was legal and Crawford needed to be. <laughs> Parrot was another one of these guys who may need his own episode because he's like a Dashiell Hammett character. He, like, he's playing all yeah. sides using intelligence. Ray Raymond Chandler. Raymond Chandler. No. Um, both really <laughs> he's just a really smart charming guy who even like he forced Harry Chandler who pretty much was a powerful man in the city into a truce over the municipal ownership of the electrical utility against the LA Times in the same vein Raymond Chandler had admitted to using the model of Charles Crawford as the villain for so many of his yeah yeah, it sounds like it yeah but that's besides the point anyways so basically bootlegging was run out <laughs> of this that. shut up ignore <laughs> that bootlegging was basically run out of City Hall Crawford even boasted about having a private telephone line in City Hall that's how easy it was basically <laughs> Crawford and Parrot are running all of the 20s. Crawford is in charge of so much bootlegging. Two things happen after he died. We won't get too much into it just because it's a gangster episode. One, he gets buried at Forest Long Glendale, not far from Edward Everett Horton, the narrator of Fractured Fairy Tales for Rocky and Bullwinkle. <laughs> he also the owner of the ranch in Encino where F. Scott Fitzgerald lived briefly. Really? F. Scott Fitzgerald, known oh, drunk there. of the Roaring Twenties. Okay. The other thing that happened after Crawford died was his widow opened up the Crosswords of the World, which is the shopping area yeah. off of Sunset that's shaped, like, yeah, that's shaped like a, like a cruise ship. It is one of the country's first shopping malls that's where her husband died more on that on another episode so lawlessness under the guise of being lawful that was 20s los angeles apparently during a 15 month period more than 100 of the 1200 police officers were charged for misconduct or dismissed from duty between 1919 and 1923 eight police chiefs came and went overwhelmed by the chinatown-esque monolith of corruption that Mm -hmm. they faced in 1924 voters elected asia keys who was a dry to be the city district attorney he proved to be of course lenient on all bootleggers they said all dealings with bootleggers were done out in the open because no one was there to stop them lapd worked for them the politicians worked for them 
so they didn't need to hide anything. They mm. kind of like, they probably had to wait till night, but that's <laughs> it. but that's a pros in the big shots. There still was the little guys trying to score big. There were reportedly 400 speakeasies in the Los Angeles area and twice as much moonshine stills in the surrounding areas. <laughs> moonshine stills were the meth labs of their day, and they only sound romantic because Annie Griffith show made them yeah. funny. Was, Smash it up. <laughs> since real alcohol and liquor was scarce, backyard moonshiners were using dangerous chemicals to brew with, and they were not experts. <laughs> there was an increase in alcohol poisoning and regular poisonings, and a lot of people died. <laughs> there were supposedly several stills in areas like Newhall and Downey, where they made something called Grapo Moonshine that burned all the way down and kept burning. In Chino, <laughs> outside of the city limits, so sorry, I know you hate that, but there was a raid. I don't hear it. No, listen, was, I'm not listening. I'm, I'm going to take my headphones off. There was a raid of 20,000 gallons of whiskey and corn mash in three 250-gallon copper steels. I bet we could have done more. Come on, yeah, give us a bigger... We'll, <laughs> we'll do it in less copper steels. We'll Ooh. do it in silver. Huge amounts of alcohol was being smuggled in from either Canada as way of Santa Barbara or most ports, really, or Tijuana. Tijuana, Mexico. People just drive it up. Uh, Tijuana, Mexico. These little guys could be busted and jailed if they weren't paying for police protection, and it seems like many of them weren't. There were many pictures of police dumping liquors into the, just straight into the sewers to... <laughs> what we can only assume were more copper steels to collect food from city hall like that's just drunk fish in the ocean <laughs> these are some of the speakeasies i found about some of them were obviously shut down others survived this bernie's delicatessen at 1551 vine street near sunset was quite quaint quarreling little uh, dally that sold beer to almost anyone including undercover cops which is why it was busted <laughs> the italian cafe and western sold spaghetti ravioli and muscatel which is sort of wine busted no more italian cafe busted give us your raviolis <laughs> Tony's Cafe on East First Street was also another busted speakeasy. There were several roadhouses, quotes, in Culver City that operated as speakeasies tonight. The most famous being the Cotton Club on West Washington and National. The West Side, I don't know why Culver City and obviously Venice too, were both, everyone, it was just kind of nobody cared after a certain point. Very lenient on booze yeah. over there. Like you mentioned before, the Townhouse is a bar that still stands on Windward Avenue in Venice. It's very yeah. ornate. It's very beautiful. I've been there a couple times. It also has, particularly when you go there now, hard to catch staircase going downstairs to the Del Monte speakeasy. When Prohibition hit, the owner, an Italian immigrant, named Caesar Monetti, is it? Uh, yeah, it yeah, Monotti. Monotti, yeah, Monotti, yeah. We'll call him Monotti. He pretty much said, like, oh, fooey, whatever. Prohibition. I'm serving drinks anyway. Italian for Bahamba. <laughs> Since there was a pier nearby, ships would come from Canada there and just stock up his yeah, supply room. It's crazy. His upstairs, he turned into a grocery store during Prohibition, and the basement could be accessed through a trap door lowered on a rope-operated dumbwaiter for two alcoholics at a time. <laughs> or as they're called, dumbwaiters. <laughs> a dumbwaiter of drunks. It's a unit of measurement of drunks. <laughs> they now have an awesome burlesque show on Wednesday nights, if you ever want to go. I always <laughs> want to get Daniel to go. He won't go because he thinks it's stripping totally different <laughs> arvell's blues club in, in santa monica ladies showing skin <laughs> ladies showing skin my, what would my mother think <laughs> arvell's blues club like you mentioned in santa monica also served liquor pretty discreetly it was a music venue mostly but they also managed to <laughs> inject this if you're driving on the 101 near vermont or the silver lake exit by that five points third street virgil beverly and silver lake and you see a giant gothic sort of art deco public storage building known, yeah known as the american company storage building i love that place but it's now owned by public storage dracula's public storage yeah building. yeah it's where he keeps all his uh, coffins. The top floor used to be a speakeasy, the 41 Club. They got raided. Really? Yeah, which they got raided, which means they weren't, they must have been behind on security payments. But yeah, the top floor was a speakeasy. How they, bold. When they got raided, the cops uncovered different liquors in the value of $10,000. Oh my God, I that's know. like $11,000 in today's money. That's almost like four drinks nowadays. <laughs> right, am I right? Am I right? Come on. Traffic? <laughs> uh, Tinder? Dating? Smog? <laughs> What's with the air here? Am I dying? Yes, I hope so soon. The Golden Gopher, in downtown on 8th Street used to sell near beer or medicinal beer to patrons during Prohibition. As recently as 2011, I believe, upon restoring the annex to the Roslyn Hotel in downtown, they found a speakeasy in the basement 
called the Monterey Room that seemed very luxurious. It had a reception area, a hat check room, a long wooden cabinet to hold booze, a long wooden bar. There's a hand-painted flamenco dancer on the door. It had, it had a door. <laughs> wow. Now, now it just holds supplies. Or does it? Mm, what's in there? Knock three times. Password is periwinkle. <laughs> I'm kidding. Don't do that. You'll get shot. Rosalind also possibly haunted by ghosts. Rosalind also linked to the Cecil in that the killer of the pigeon later might have also killed a woman at the Rosalind Hotel. And the Cecil Hotel was one of the first places to house AA meetings, yeah. which was needed during Prohibition. Yeah. That's the weird link between the two. If you want to know more about the Cecil, listen to our third. Oh, yeah. I guess I said before it was the, the lizard people was the third one. It was the second one. The yeah, third one the is the third Cecil. The third one is the Cecil, yeah. yeah. Oh. You hear that? Yeah. It's a computer. If you hear in a plane landing, it's my brother's computer. Please donate money. We have known <laughs> IML functioning. <laughs> the most famous of the downtown speakeasies that we know about is still open yeah. on Los Angeles and 5th Street, known as the King Eddie Saloon, named thus because it is part of the King Edward Hotel. Uh-huh. Both right I off... I never put that together. Me neither until I read it. I was like, oh yeah. Duh. Who's uh, Eddie? Is Eddie here? <laughs> I want to crown him, if you know what I mean. Mm-hmm. Both right off... Eddie Munster? Is that the Eddie? Why is the King Eddie Saloon famous, Daniel? Well, we mentioned in our episode, a podcast that time forgot, King Eddie Saloon, which was opened kind of late in the game of Prohibition, but they didn't know it was going to end, had a direct link to the underground tunnels of Los Angeles, mm-hmm. where booze was being run through all the time. <laughs> Not so much by the big wigs of bootlegging, they didn't need to, but the little guys were just using the tunnels for everything. Just bootleggers running past escaped criminals. What do you got? <laughs> <laughs> running past police trying to get to another pound, running past lizard people, just a weird Times Square down there. The Rosalind hooked up to the tunnels as well, but the King Eddie was a big spot, because they like, led right up to like the door. Yeah. It was not like There was no weird segues. The saloon part kept quiet as a ruse for piano tuning and a piano store which supposedly happened up floor above but the booze was being delivered and served below as a piano and repair place no one would question that music was being played although some people were like well, that's kind of weird it's so late the moonlight then, sonata be quiet <laughs> as previously mentioned there's 11 miles of marble lined tunnels underneath los angeles where the hyper intelligent lizard people dwell <laughs> that was used for all sorts of hyper intelligence <laughs> they were i, I listened to it used for all sorts of exchanges legal and illegal police have moved high exposure prisoners such as charles manson through the tunnels bank securities make large sum cast transfers there they did anyways corner store body there politicians hid bodies there although it was officially cut off from the public there's a lover's neck they neck there because it's so romantic being submerged with the rats it's like we're in a toilet (laughs) kiss me it is uh, officially cut off to the public but there are secret ways but i didn't write down you look it up that's all the fun we mentioned it in the in that episode i'm not gonna mention it again let's let's make it some fun do we have to repeat ourselves we don't remember they were used in episodes of true detective season two which were they yeah when he has to go underground and meet the the bird people i call i keep calling them bird people i want there to be more bird people (laughs) before he gets spoiler alerted another booze option if speakeasy wasn't your thing was gambling ships mm-hmm. which started to spring up in this 1928 which operated three miles off the coast into international waters if you've read raymond chandler's farewell my lovely you're familiar mm-hmm. with the idea what these yeah. do they could be seen offshores of santa monica and long beach and they kind of from a lot of people because they had like weird marquee lights and they were celebratory they, everyone thought they looked like christmas lights for some reason and like oh christmas is on its way here <laughs> christmas is out at sea but uh, on these ships you could gamble and booze it up and then get taxied back to shore the most famous of these ships was the SS Rex, and its captain was the king of the SoCal Rum Runners, an Italian immigrant named Tony Carnero. The Rex and the Battle of Santa Monica Bay happens later in the 30s, after Prohibition ends. I won't get too much into it, but Carnero gets his start during the late 20s as a mover of liquor. Carnero owned his own fleet of ships, check that out, and would send them to Canada to get good stuff and then bring back here. Canada. This is just syrup. 
This is hockey stick butter. <laughs> At first, he was bringing it onto shore and selling it to wealthy bootleggers and alcoholics, but then he got busted and served time. So when he came back, he started doing gambling ship stuff. <laughs> At least he learned his lesson. Oh, also, by 1929, the mayor, George Cryer, that Parrott and Crawford put in the seat, he was out of office. So the new mm-hmm. mayor between 1929 and 1933 was a guy named John C. Porter. He was backed by the Prohibition Party. He mm-hmm. gained approval when, as a member of the U.S. trade delegation to France, refused a wine toast in a public <laughs> ceremony in France. What a swell guy, right? <laughs> oh, here's the thing that I've been wanting to mention in this show somehow. Mayor John C. Porter, former member of the Ku Klux Klan. <laughs> hey, you voted for him. I was not born. Prove it. Let me see your birth certificate. So this entire time... Your skin looks really crumbly. <laughs> you look very ashy. What's with that? You look gray-faced. Are you a hater of uh, minorities? This entire, <laughs> <I'm the pets. laughs> this entire time, all through the 20s, from 1917 to 1933, the effectiveness of the noble social national experiment was being debated. It was obvious that in big cities, crime was way too F-worded up, and it was unstoppable. Like, it seemed clear that if the ban on sale and manufacturing alcohol was legalized again, the crime surrounding all of it would dissipate. But the problem was that prohibition was a effective in smaller, more rural areas. Areas without secret underground tunnels could do this. Everyone was still in favor of social reform, but it seemed like there was another way to go about Mm -hmm. it. It was obvious, especially in Los Angeles, that authority figures did not respect the rules of prohibition. Speakeasies were unstoppable. The illegality of manufacturing of alcohol made moonshines flourish and they were killing people. Even President Harding, as a senator, had stocked up on liquor before prohibition and was known to drink. So lines between legal and illegal were all blurred. They were killing people? Well, they were moonshine. Oh, people dying. From drinking, but there, I've also read articles poison. about yeah people coming upon moonshines and then moonshiners had to kill them. Not a lot, but I read like one or two articles. I wrote a few fan fiction articles <laughs> about prohibition. I wrote one kind of unlawful, uh, starring Tom Hardy and Shia LaBeouf. <laughs> Is that the name of the movie? Whatever. There were several national <laughs> surveys printed in popular publications that asked readers to vote on whether they still believed in prohibition, and they've now voted against it, citing mm. that official corruption was making this ineffective. Mm. So they vote to stop corruption, but nah, seriously. <laughs> How about let's now ban corruption? Let's all be nice have we tried like not being corrupt <laughs> 22nd amendment be nice also after like 10 years the idea of the drunkard was a symbol for rebellion and that was getting attention mm. and the likes of drunk ass non-magoo like wc field was <laughs> gaining popularity at the end of prohibition mm-hmm. that secured this national momentum of like let's just get drunk again it's cool to be drunk again. yeah the drunk in the new society still spent his paycheck on booze and gambling and kicked toddlers but now it was funny <laughs> now it's funny because his nose is big <laughs> <laughs> you like a nose that big full of nickels <laughs> I love W.C. Fields. Uh, you know McGill. he. You know that he influenced <laughs> yeah. Doug We're all aware, right? We I are, mean, all... I don't know if we've told enough people yet. <laughs> so starting in the 30s, states were reversing their stance on the 18th Amendment by ratifying the 21st Amendment that would undo the 18th Amendment, like Microsoft Word has. <laughs> it was the Windows 10 to the Windows 8. <laughs> the Democratic platform of 3233 pushed for the repeal of prohibition, promising honest Americans that they could get blotto again in public. <laughs> public. Los Angeles voters, along with the winning amount of other voters across the country, voted to repeal prohibition and let me tell you it worked 1933 what a waste of an amendment like how many there's so few amendments yeah. have been passed and two of them canceled each other isn't that like imagine going to 18 like okay i'll keep reading <laughs> Okay, I wasted my time reading that 18th one. The adoption of the 21st Amendment repealed the 18th Amendment. Repeal Day is now celebrated on December 5th. Celebration Day is different than Repeal Day. Okay. Yeah, I remember this confusion yeah. of like, hey, come to our place and drink beer today, but also that day too. Yeah, I'm not following yeah, for I mean, that. Come on. Oh man, okay. What happened to our crazy cast of characters? They're all shot. 
So LA, Me- <laughs> so LA Meekly, how does Los Angeles celebrate Repeal Day? Well, let me tell you. Many hip hipster bars serve $1 cocktails on Repeal Day, which is pretty cool. Mm-hmm. The list I got might be an old list, so make sure to get an updated list when it come, times come for that. Refresh uh, your LA Meekly app for yeah. updates. I'm sure we're all going to get updates like it's an Amber Alert of where to get dollar <laughs> drinks. Places like the Varnish, which is the hidden speakeasy Kohl's, type bar right? inside of Kohl's. Yeah. They celebrate Repeal Day. The Thirsty Crow on Silver Lake does that. The Blind Barber in old speakeasy town Culver City does that, as well as the super swanky Edison in downtown off of 2nd Street that makes you dress up. Villain's Tavern, another picturesque bar that I've gotten drunk at <laughs> in the Arts District. They celebrate that as does Lock and Key in Koreatown. All very hip places with moody lighting and usually very expensive drinks but go on December 5th and you might get them for a dollar. <laughs> Los Angeles has become a very nice place to brew and create alcohol. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's several mixology types places. Thirsty Crow like I mentioned, The Varnish like I mentioned, The Library Bar near Central Library. Mm-hmm. King Andy Saloon and the Del Monte are still open. No password necessary. No <laughs> the password is cash. <laughs> The password is cash only. The password is tip me. Downtown Los Angeles, now that it has been gentrified and made for rich white kids, has given us a lot of great, beautiful bars. The Broadway Bar, there's a, like 199 bars inside of Clifton's now. Coles is great. <laughs> the tequila place to cost from Coles is great. Tony's Saloon on, I think, 7th Street is great. I didn't know this because I wasn't hit, but there are modern speakeasies in Los Angeles. Yeah. I found out while researching, but the fact that they have Yelp pages means that there's no desperation in drinking. I don't really secret. get it. I don't get it either. It's kind of cool that like there's a door and there's no sign, but I'm... You, you look it up. I, I respect the code of secrecy. I've gone into plenty of doors that have no sign on it. It's <laughs> that, not a pleasant experience. It's called a B&E. <laughs> we have a lot of really great breweries in town. Golden Road, which mm-hmm. is unfortunately bought by Budweiser and America Brewery. Is it really? Yeah. That sucks. But uh, it's still really great. It's in Glendale off the train tracks on San Fernando Road. Everyone keeps telling me, and I'm going to confirm it very soon, the amazingness that is the Phantom Carriage Brewery in Torrance. I think it's horror themed. Really? Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Friend of the show, Chris that. Crittenton likes it a lot. Well, then. Let's call him right now. Tell us how much you like it. Hey, baby. This is LA Mickley. We do live calls now. Stone IPA, which is originally from Escondido, has a remote location here in Pasadena off the Gold Line. Very nice beer there. Angel City Brewery, which is an art district. It's great. It's in that big, beautiful building. I think I'm like... Third and Alameda. They have Alley craft beer tours where you can get in on a bus for fifty dollars and they designate drive you to different breweries in town. It's nice if to drink without crying. You don't have a bus. Exactly. Which I do. And if you're like my And if you're like my Puritan friend here sitting across from me, there's also AA. <laughs> it's my favorite place to drink. The Temperance Union is still going strong in Los Angeles. The WCTU remained in California with thousands of members still dedicated to warning individuals about the dangers of alcoholism. They're still very active. Or you can just join DARE. Not me, though. I'm hurting inside, and I don't mean Graybill Burn. I have a few more local breweries. The Eagle Rock Brewery. Oh, yeah, Eagle Rock Brewery's coming up. Which they opened in 2009, which apparently they were the first brewery to open in L.A. in a long time. There's also uh, El Segundo Brewing Company and Monkish. It's very big. We should go right now. Oh, I forgot to celebrate. Oh, you want to take a swig? No, Greg. This is a children's podcast. It's not. It's for it's for children ages <laughs> it's 18 for children up. of the mind. You want to drink a little bit? I don't want any of that. What is it? It's tequila. Okay, let's sing, then I drink it. Greg's beating me. Stop it, Greg. Oh, my God. Of all the things we've talked about, you're drinking one alcohol that we never talked about this whole episode. it's not from here. You want some? Also, I work for the federal government. Uh, where'd you get that? <laughs> hey, I could drink it. I, it I, I stockpiled it from 1916. This was passed down to me from the natives. <laughs> so now Greg, has, he has tasted the nectar of Satan. Yeah. That's the, uh, the alcohol history of Los Angeles. I don't drink much, but it did yeah. reading so much about wine. Like, oh my God, I'm so thirsty. Yeah, I just like I was making a list of all the speakeasies and breweries and stuff. Yeah. And I just had it sitting next to me like, God 
<laughs> more than anything, I am more interested than I've ever been in LA corruption because I kind of was before. But uh, that's crazy how corrupt it yeah, was. Yeah, no, oh. I didn't. Yeah, I feel like my research sort of swayed towards that because I was so interested in it. Because it was kind of like really vague before of how it operated. I'm like, okay, well, a bad guy pays a cop and the cop doesn't do anything. <laughs> oh, and, the bad guy's the mayor. <laughs> <laughs> and there's nobody to stop anybody from anything. The first good mayor comes in like 1938. <laughs> Does he? <laughs> Fletcher Bowd- Bowdrin? Bowdrin? The little square outside of City Hall is named after him. It has to be some Grand good. Park. You can't name a park after the ex Klu Klux Klan member. <laughs> Watch me. <laughs> it's too bad we couldn't discuss more of the specifics of the gangsters, but that's that's a whole other episode. Yeah, yeah. That that is that will be gone into in yeah. great length. Yeah. I really want to take you to the uh Del Monte or the um Is that the one you were talking about? Yeah, that's the uh Jesus, what's the... Oh, the townhouse. The, that's the, they're the same place. Greg's drunk. He can't remember. Oh, no, it's, it's... He's got X's for eyes right now. He's got a snoot full. He's totally blotto, everybody. I think you should take a swig. In honor of this show, I think you should. It's going to make my stomach on fire, and it's going to make me have to go to the toilet. Those are two of your favorite things. Why are you pretending like you don't like that? Fire in my belly in the toilet? <laughs> Sign me up. In a public restroom? Sign me up. I want to go to the San Antonio Winery. Oh, yeah, I love it there, yeah. I've never been. I've had a meatball uh, sandwich there. It was really good. <laughs> They're known for that. Yeah, they are Even before that. they started wine, it was a meatball sandwich place. It's very beautiful. It's right off the 10 freeway. I I've seen exit. it all, like, it's coming on, back from off wherever. Off of Main Street, yeah. We should go. Field yeah. trip. Yeah, we can interview this old guy. <laughs> hey, oh, I know. you're old. You want to talk to us? You're old. What's, your What's that like? <laughs> you're so old. How are you still alive? What's getting up like for you at this age? <laughs> well, LA, uh, long history of alcohol. Mm-hmm. And it's so embedded in the growth of Los Angeles, too. Like, it almost develops with it, especially yeah. like the wine and the vineyard. It also is interesting that, like, this was sort of lubricant of all the other parts of history. Like, this was the yeah. wine they were drinking at this yeah. part of history. This is where this guy was going to this bar. Exactly. Like, it all is sort of lurking in the background. Yeah, exactly. Which it, is why it should be banned again. <laughs> it's a very good set piece for other big things that are happening yeah. it sets the table thank you and specifically when we try prohibition the ante is up so much on crime that it also it pushes the next wave of evolution of the city i wonder if people are going to look back on marijuana in a similar way probably maybe I don't know. you're right we should smoke a, a gangja <laughs> that's the Ducci boys <laughs> a rich and flowing history yes for los angeles and it kind of burns you know what else burns when you don't leave us reviews on itunes Daniel burns me <laughs> i burn greg for you not leaving reviews you think it was bad when dads were beating their sons for drinking i beat greg for not getting reviews Do you know how many times i've branded him <laughs> yeah leave us a review on itunes Please. we've gotten some nice ones and some that are uh, accurately critical of us. yeah we've taken your notes thank you <laughs> eat it um, you drink it too <laughs> go to itunes leave us a review or if you have an iphone just open the podcast app search for la meekly it's right there it's very easy to do you're mm-hmm. signed in and everything it helps us out it gets us noticed by more people it helps it makes it easier for more people to find us and we haven't noticed more we, we see all of you thank you for noticing us yeah thank you it's uh, very kind yeah. it's as nice as a shot of tequila at the end of the night you wouldn't know <laughs> um you could search us on facebook la meekly we have a uh, facebook page we have a tumblr page which is sort of like the home base for podcasts we put a lot of links and pictures up in the archive yeah it's yeah archive of all the episodes it's la uh meekly no yeah la meekly at dumb 
tumblr.com lameekly.tumblr.com greg is tom we have a twitter page at la meekly we have an instagram page la underscore meekly we put pictures every day send us an email la.meekly at gmail.com any questions we also have started our field trip episodes so if you have a recording them recording them if you work at a place of note or have an interesting connection to la something in la let us know and we'll come interview you and uh, you'll give us free stuff that's how it works Um, you work at a food place because we're hungry all the time (laughs) one will be coming out soon we just have to figure out some logistic things about it and uh, yeah that'll be happening soon any last words on this I have a champagne bottle I want to break against this computer so after you finish this I'm going to hit this really hard (laughs) you cool with that I hope you have kept it in a cave because it might have exploded already (laughs) have a good September everybody my birthday's coming up so you can all send me my little my little baby boy which is me is uh, turning into a baby boy man (laughs) so yeah have a good September listen to this over and over or at least 10 times a day and then we'll be coming back for October for a little bit of a Halloween-y type of episode get your cauldrons nice and hot <laughs> we'll be throwing cats inside <laughs> boy oh boy oh cats in a cauldron <laughs> so that has been New York City the LA History Podcast since 2013 mm. but seriously you have to dump that stuff out because I don't want to go home smelling like tequila which stinks it's the most pungent of alcohol mm.